Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Jess Michaels. Yes, we do. We do. And it was great. She is amazing. Yeah. Yes. And yes. we we talked about so many interesting things and really in mm-hmm. depth about like mm-hmm. finding out how you work well and mm-hmm. leaning into that. And I really enjoyed this podcast. Yeah. I think we have me to too. take more notes yeah, on it. She, she was uh, traditionally published for quite a while. And then because she started back in, I think she said 2004. I think. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but then, and then has, she's indie published now, but she just has so much great insight into writing, but also knowing your audience, mm-hmm. writing what, what brings you joy, you know, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. So yeah, yeah it was great. Yeah, really So what's been stuff. going on with you? Um, this week has been just a little bit strange. I feel like mm-hmm. I am not uh, very adaptable and I'm trying to get back into my routine after the holidays yeah. and I have got some writing done, but we still have mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on. So trying to, trying to create a routine and yes. uh, it's been challenging. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. One thing yeah. I did do is um, if anybody writes historical mystery and they're interested in being involved in this, I have decided to create a historical mystery day and it's going to be on September 29th. And so I announced it uh, the last week of December so people could put on their calendars. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it's just going to be like a social media thing, like talk about your favorite historical mysteries. And Mm -hmm. I have a little survey people could send their readers to, to take so we can have the results of the survey and, you know, we'll have some graphics and images to share. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes and, that's just kind of a little side project that like at the end of 2020, I was like, that would be cool. Cause there's not a yeah. day for historical mysteries. And I was like, I think there should be, I think yes, that'd be a good thing. Absolutely should be. There yeah. should be. Yeah. So, that's great. So what about you? What have you been doing? Um, I am pretty high adaptability, but I am still having trouble, you know, getting back in a routine. I mean, I'm writing and, um, but you know, Monday came and I was like, Oh, Monday, I'm going to jump back in. You know, of course, there were things that I had not taken care of while I was on break that I didn't really even need to, you know, realize it needed to be taken care of. So those had to be done. But, um, yeah, no, it's been fine. It's been good. Um, I was listening to Becca Symes uh, on her quick cast. She has, like, she goes through all the strengths and talks about the basements, you know, the the basements for people who don't know are kind of the things that can. um, It can drag you down. Can drag you down, yeah. <laughs> and uh, for two of mine, she was just talking. They were talking about, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's why I do well here, but I don't do well here." Like one is it the adaptability one is you need to create things you have to adapt to, and oh. that's why I always do really well on new diets because oh, it's something new I have to adapt to and. Um, but if I try to do it again later, I'm like, yeah, I know how that works. So it's You've already like, done it. Yeah. Oh. I, I mean, so in writing, you know, when I was working, you know, having to adapt my schedule to that made things go a lot easier or smoother. I won't say easier, but being full time, my schedule is pretty open. So it's just interesting. It's just mm-hmm. if you don't if you haven't listened to the quick cast, you really need to. Um, if you're at all interested in strengths or anything, and yeah. I'm not as versed or fluent in them as like Jess is and even you sometimes, but it's just really interesting. I think it's fascinating though, because yeah. like, and it's all about like figuring out how, what works for you and getting mm-hmm. better at what you do. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. learning about ourselves and learning how we work and how, and right. what can pull us down, then we mm-hmm. can identify that and stop doing those things or go, right. Oh, this is. You know, like or this was, is why this is happening. Yeah. 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 Like I was talking to you the other day and I, I'm in high input and mm-hmm. I was researching something and I was like, I'm going to find out. I think it was the train thing that I talked mm-hmm. about maybe. Yeah. And I was like, I cannot, you know, and I spent like a long time searching for like a certain detail. And I remember thinking, 
hmm, I think this might be a basement where, you know, yeah. like, I really don't need that detail, but I, I just want all the information I can find about it. So maybe, you know, you know, and, oh, and being able to identify that is good mm-hmm. because then I can go, okay, that's enough of that time to, right. <laughs> time to get back right. on track. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and we just got, we've had so many positive uh, responses and remarks and posts on Facebook about Zoe York's interview yes. last week. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend it. I really feel like Jess's interview is right up there with oh, yeah. Zoe's as far as really usable, relatable information. So right. yeah. we should so we probably should get, get on with it. the show. Yeah. 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 All right. So here's Jess. All right. So today we have Jess Michaels with us. How are you today, Jess? I'm so good. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, we're so glad you're here. I'm excited. So, I usually am hosting the podcast. I'm like, I'm on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to put your podcast in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So let me read a quick bio and then Jamie will start us off with some questions. Okay. Jess Michaels is a USA Today bestselling author who likes geeky stuff like Star Wars, playing video games, Bob's Burgers, and collecting pops. Although she started out traditionally published by Avon HarperCollins, Pocket, and Hachette, in 2015, she went fully indie and has never looked back. She is lucky enough to be married to her favorite person in the world and live in the heart of Dallas. All of those things are true. (laughs) I didn't even put one lie in. (laughs) That's great. Especially because you just said you met your husband in high school, right? Yeah. We've been together for a long time. We've been married since we were 20. So yeah, yeah, we, we got lucky. That's so great. You get married when you're 20. It's always a risk. (laughs) It is. It's always a risk anyway. It's true. (laughs) So tell us how you got into writing. So I was always interested in writing. I mean, I was always writing when I was a kid. I won a young author's thing when I was like in fifth grade. So writing was always something I loved to do, but I never thought it was like a real job because that's what you get told when you're a creative kid. You know, you're like, well, you got to have a backup. Um, So when I was in college, um, I would every night I would would write this romance novel because I thought that writing a romance novel would be easy. (laughs) (laughs) So cute and adorable and young. (laughs) Um, and almost married. Um, but so, and I would print out the pages every night and then, and then the girls in the dorm would be like, did you, did you finish a chapter? Can I read it? You know, cause I was passing it out as I went. And I, that was so addictive that concept, like people wanted to read what I was writing, but I really thought I couldn't, that nobody did that for a real job, despite all appearance, like all appearances that that was true, that people were doing it as a real job. So I sort of set it aside. And then, um, when I graduated from college, my husband and I had both been working full-time and going to school full-time and he got a job with a major tech company. And suddenly we had a, like just a little money that we thought was a lot of money because we were poor and young. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, why don't you just do your, your coursework? Cause I was going to go back and get a master's degree in um, marriage and family counseling. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been able to do any um, like, like field work because of the fact that we were both working and going to school full-time. Right. And so I would do that during the day while, and then at night I would work on this book that I had written in college because I was just drawn to keep working on it. And he came home one day and he said, you seem really miserable every single time you talk about what you're doing with field work. And every single time you talk about books, you seem really excited. So I don't understand why you don't just not go back to college and just do writing and then we'll never miss your income and we won't get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So you can get an, an, you know, master's degree you're never going to use. And let's just do that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. So I wrote full time. Yeah. He's such a keeper. Oh my God. He's the best. (laughs) Super cute too. So um, (laughs) he, I mean, it just, it sort of worked out because he, you know, I did for, for four and a half, five years, I wrote full time without being published and then got my contract with Avon. And then in 2015, I'm sorry, not 2015, 2011, we moved to Southern Arizona um, and he ended up retiring from his job at this big tech company. And then he started working full time for me. Mm-hmm. So he sort of let me kind of chase my dream. And then, you know, what, 10 years later, I got to say, what if I just had this and you didn't have to be miserable at your job anymore? Uh, so now, you know, I, I think I'm a slightly better boss. <laughs> he has better, yeah. he has better benefits or perks, I guess. So. <laughs> he might say differently, but I don't think so. He's a nice man. He would never say it differently. <laughs> he would yeah. never say that. Never. <laughs> That's great. That is a great way to, for it to work out for him to yeah. let you do pursue your dream and then to free him up from the nine to five later on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really worked out because he's, he's very good at what he does for me and it allows me to be much more creative because I don't have to worry about a lot of those, um, you know, sort of office tasks that all of us have to handle when we're doing indie. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, that's true. Right. Yeah. Well, I've just hired my uh, daughter to do most of my office tasks and some other things so that I can, to take a lot of stuff off my plate. So. Well, it allows me to write more books a year. And that allows us to make more money. So when I think about if I'm writing an extra couple books a year, and this is how much money we make on each of those books, that's how much money he's really making because mm-hmm. he's a lot. That like that's that's the income that he's bringing in. From I mean, he gets paid because he actually works for us. We have a corporation, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when I think about like the value that that adds, having someone that's taking those things and the things that I hate doing, which I, you know I hate. I'm like, here, here's the thing I hate. Please do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's Sounds great. like a great system. It well, is. What is your definition of success? So that's a hard one for me because um, we were just talking about this before we started recording that I'm a, I'm an achiever or personality, right? If you know what StrengthsFinder is. And so there's never really a level of anything where I feel successful. Like I'm always <laughs> like, okay, I, I reached that goal. That's amazing. Okay, next goal, <laughs> you know? So for me, I mean, but being able to provide and provide well for our family and being able to allow him to, you know, not have to do this nine to five soul sucking job, um, being able to do what I love and, and have that to be sustainable when that is not true. I know for a lot of people that, that to me, I know, I know that that is actually success. No matter how much I tell myself that there's like another like goal at the end, I get to the end zone and I'm like, that's not the end zone. And I keep going. So despite having that be my personality, I I know that for me, that is the definition for me of success is being able to sustain a life through what I love to do. What do you wish you'd known about writing and craft? I, I think I, I wish I'd known how my brain worked better at the beginning. You know, I mean, I spent a lot of time, uh, which I don't know if that's really true because I think that you sort of learn what works for you by trying out a lot of different right. things. And so I don't necessarily regret trying out different things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wish I'd known that just because someone who was very, very good at what they did told me that that was how it worked, that if it didn't work for me, I could throw it out like a lot faster than it probably did. Right. You know, because there's, there are as many people that write books, there are as many ways to write a book and to publish a book and to promote a book. Like there is, you know, if there's a billion people writing books, there's a billion ways to be successful or to finish or to do whatever. And um, knowing that makes me a lot more comfortable in my process now. And that allows me to not spend a lot of time, um, doing FOMO, you know, like, well, this person's doing this and that seems like it's really working for them. And I should try that. You know, I don't do that as much. And I think part of that just comes with experience, but I think also part of it comes with really understanding how my brain works and why my process works alongside of that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I really, when I talk to other authors, that's the thing that I hear so often is that like kind of chasing the tail of this will make it work for me. And it's like, well, it might, and that's cool. And you should try it, but like, don't, assume that if it doesn't work that you failed or that if it doesn't work, that there isn't some other system that might work. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I, so I suppose that's the advice I wish I'd had when I was starting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had to learn that too. Yeah. I think about Zoe York from last week's podcast who said, you know, she starts with the black, the black moment is the beginning of her book and then everything else, there's tension, but it's, it's a rise after that. And, you know, that's not how we're told to write a book. And right. So, but it works for her and that's her process and she's been really successful. So you, you just have to find what you, what works well, and, for you. And also I think because of indie, I mean, the rules that we all are still following in a lot of ways about how a book is structured, about how a book is published are still traditional publishing rules. Mm-hmm. Like traditional publishing says people don't want X. But right. it's been proven again and again and again that people want X all the time. There's an audience for X. It may not be the biggest audience, right. but there is an audience for almost anything you can write. And mm-hmm. so, it, you know, it's it's understanding that, okay, I'm going to grab this niche audience because that's what I want to do. And then I have to accept that, that's the, that there may be limitations in the box of that niche audience, but it exists. So if I want to do this and I want to grab onto those people, then I should, mm-hmm. you know, understanding the limitations. So yeah, but but I mean we're we're we all shouldn't be dancing to the drum of what traditional publishing thinks is what should happen because right. in some ways they're very much not on the pulse of that. 
because right. they're always behind. I mean, they're, they're buying right. books that aren't going to come out for two years. They don't know what's going to be hot in two years. We do. Cause right. we're going to be writing it five minutes before it comes out. Right. Exactly. <laughs> those of us who are activators are <laughs> right. Right. Activators <laughs> of the world are going, I know. <laughs> I know. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, what about marketing? What do you wish you'd known about that? I think that it's all a crapshoot, you know, <laughs> that, that it's, I mean, you know, that, that it, it is consistently changing. I mean, things that I was doing, last book don't work for this book and so you know i i pick the things that i enjoy doing and that i know have brought me results and then i'm always kind of changing and looking and evaluating like did that work this time um and also knowing that um something like there's so many variables that go into whether a book is successful like the marketing might not be wrong like you did everything right and it still didn't work like who knows why there's some magic wand and people hate that because we all want to have an easy button and we all want to have a like this is how it works Mm -hmm. but I honestly think that just knowing that it's truly a crapshoot like you know I mean I have fallen into what I do with each book and that seems to work pretty consistently and so that's what I keep doing. And I'm, again, trying to sort of ignore the noise of, but you should try this, but you should try this. I mean, occasionally I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'll try it. I don't want to disregard, you know, and not adjust to the market. But at the same time, I don't want to drown myself in the pool of here's 5 billion things that you should try because I can't do 5 billion things. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough hands. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough brain power in the day. Right. You know, even if I had 20 people working for me, I wouldn't have the ability to do all of those things, nor would it be smart or a good use of my time or money. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about a lot on here, uh, best practices, you know, Mm -hmm. there are just some best practices that pretty much consistently work. But what's funny is some of those will work really well for one release, the next release, it won't. And then the next release, it will. So you just sort of have to say, okay, this is my plan. I'm going to stick to it. And then afterwards I'll reevaluate and adjust, but not having that knee knee jerk reaction, which is well in a best practice for a romance, a best practice for a romance novel might be very different from a best practice for a mystery or best practice for a thriller. Like that, you know, I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, I mean, especially these big marketing gurus that kind of go around in the world, like a lot of times I look and I think like, when was the last time you wrote a book? Like what you're making money off of, is authors not books and so you know I mean it's again it's like kind of that Becca concept of questioning the premise every single time you know will this work for me and do I want to spend the time and energy on it right um and if I start spending the time and energy on it how long do I you do I look for results before I say okay this didn't work for me and that's okay and that doesn't mean again that doesn't mean I failed it just means this didn't work for me or I don't like doing it Cause right. it's too hard to do things I don't like consistently. Right. Like sometimes I have to do things I don't like because I'm an adult that sucks. But <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I mean, it's still, if I really hate doing something, I probably shouldn't do it because I'm right. just going to be miserable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career and looking back, did they turn out to be right or wrong? Um, I assumed when I sold to HarperCollins that I would stay with HarperCollins forever. Like I, yeah, Avon yeah. is the, you know, gold standard of traditional publishing for historical romance, which is what I write. And I thought, oh, I'm a, I, my dream was I'm going to write for Avon and I'm going to grow within that company. And I'm, you know, and that's where I'm going to stay forever. I was 150% wrong on that <laughs> for my own choice and for their choice. Like that was not, and it was, it was not a good path. I, I thought I would be happy doing that forever. And I definitely would not have been happy doing that forever. (laughs) So that's probably the biggest lesson was that that was not the right path for me. But at the time, I mean, I I sold my first book in 2004. There wasn't another path. It wasn't like I could just like say, oh, well, I'm not, this isn't working for me. I mean, it took, Mm -hmm. I wrote for them from 2000, uh, they sold my book in 2004. It came out in 2005. My last book with them came out in 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I published traditionally with Sam Hain for a couple years after that for three years, four, three, four years after that. And then I went indie. So I, you know, I mean, there, what, there wasn't a space for me to do something different. And I love that there's so many more choices now, but I couldn't have imagined that those choices would have existed in 2004, 2005 or 1999 when I started writing full time. Yeah. Yeah. I did the kind of the same thing. I sold my first series to a traditional publisher and wrote like 10 books in that series because that was what you did, mm-hmm. you know, like in 2006, that was pretty much the option. Cause I knew I was not like a, uh, I think you could be self-published then, but it was much more a, 
selling books out of the back of your car and, yep. and doing events. And that was not what I wanted to do. So I just did that. And, you know, you know, I, I've transitioned to all indie as well and really enjoy it. But like when you start out, you just have to go with what your options are, you know, yeah. and, and just go from there. So, so we also like to uh, talk about um, mistakes and lessons we've mm-hmm. learned. So have you ever made a mistake that turned out to be a good thing? Oh my God. When, when I read this question, I was like, Oh, how long of a time do we have? I mean, you know, 20, <laughs> almost 20 year writing career. Yeah. There's so many, um, uh, like le- uh, usually it was things that felt like a failure and, and ended, you know what I mean? I don't you know, like, yes. I, I don't know if they were necessarily a mistake, but it felt like that, like, like this was the end of the world, the end of the career, you know, more so like firing agents or, right. you know, leaving traditional publishing or leaving, leaving HarperCollins when I left HarperCollins, you know, all of those things felt like, Ooh, am I doing the right thing? Even like jumping into indie full time. I mean, I right. remember hyperventilating in December of 2014 <laughs> before the book came out in January of 2015 going like, I don't know. I'm going to jump off a cliff and I may or may not have built my wings enough. There are rocks down there. This is bad. So, you know, I mean, taking those risks or making those changes that, that feel um, very dangerous, but then ultimately work out, um, you know, are, that's kind of part and parcel of a long-term career is that, you know, I mean, people just don't want to make mistakes. And the fact is like that, that's part of how you learn, you know I mean? I've learned something from every single mistake I've made, whether or not it's turned out to be like a great experience. I mean, I'm still learning from those experiences. So I think that that's, that's really the big thing for me is, Mm -hmm. you know, when I make those mistakes, it's like, okay, first panic, then beat myself up for (laughs) days, weeks, months, perhaps even years. And then mm-hmm. how can I learn from that and grow from that and change from that? And, right. you know, I mean, I, I, I can't pull out a mistake and say, I wish I hadn't made that because then I wouldn't be where I am. Right. Right. Yeah. So no, I if I like that. where I am, which I do, then I can't, I can't look back too much and say, Oh, I regret that too, too much. So I think all of the mistakes are good mistakes in some ways. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I think if you, um, like with my last release, I did like the, the, the aftermath of the release, I sort of thought that was a mistake. But when I stopped like at the end of the year and look back and look at my numbers and everything, it really wasn't. It's yeah. just, I got very emotional about it. And um, I'm an active number one activator. And so mm-hmm. I think when things don't immediately happen the way I want them to happen, I think, Oh, this is a failure or I've got to fix it or whatever. I don't know if that's really part of the activator thing, but it feels that way. And we want to move like you have to, if you're not comfortable, you have to move. I'm a much more activator than you. Right. Right. Yeah. You don't want to stay to be safe. You want to move to be safe. Yes. Yes. And so (laughs) I, anyway, all that to say that if you, I think if you take the approach that you have, which is every mistake you learn from, it is, it's easier to maybe feel that panic, but then not act on it every time or, or just think, okay, well, we'll fix this later, or maybe we won't, but I'm going to learn something from this later. Yeah. Although I have to say, if my husband's listening to this later, he's going to laugh and laugh and laugh at the idea that I'm like, chill looking back going like look we learned so much like because at that moment I am in abject panic hysterical crying but that but again like that's kind of the that's honestly sort of the pro like I'm gonna Mm -hmm. feel that pain because you know I mean having that perfectionist wanting to achieve wanting to win wanting to do better every single time like that's great it's a terrific driver it has downsides which is that if I don't hit the place that I think I should be or beyond Mm -hmm. then I feel like I screwed up and I'm gonna Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time litigating how much I screwed up. <laughs> but I, but I do, I think you're right when you say when I looked back at the end of the year, see when mm-hmm. you get that 20,000 foot distance and mm-hmm. you look down, you're like, Oh, there's a whole forest for these trees versus yes. when you're right in yes. the middle of it, it's a lot harder to see it. Mm-hmm. And again, like if you know that that's part of the process that you're going to have is that you're going to be stuck in the trees, but at the end of the year, you're going to look back and go, Oh, there's the forest. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately I'm not sure there are very many mistakes you can make that will ultimately end your career. I mean, there's a yeah. handful of things, but like there's yeah. no, like nothing that you do is permanent. Nothing that yeah. anyone does is permanent. Like there's no right. permanence. So that means that 
for every success, that doesn't mean you're going to be successful forever, but for every failure, it doesn't mean you're going to fail forever, you know, or whatever you consider a failure. Cause again, I'm not sure that's the right word for it. Right. Is right. whatever, oh, whatever yeah. didn't work, whatever mm-hmm. you feel like didn't work. It may not have worked the way you thought it was going to, but that doesn't mean that you can't get something out of it. Right. Right. Very good. So then we like to ask the opposite question. Was there something you thought this is a home run? We are, it's going to be the best thing I ever did. And it turned out not to be. Uh, so I had a series out actually in 2020 um, that was tied to my most successful series. And I thought that was just going to be hit it out of the park. But the unfortunate thing is that um, they're the um, illegitimate children of um, siblings of one of the Dukes in my 1797 club Duke series. And um, we called them the um, the Dukes bastards. That's what the series was called. But Amazon believes that that's a swear word and we were promptly basemented <laughs> and that took like it, it destroyed the series completely killed the series. And that, that was like a hard pill to swallow. That was a bad yeah. one. But again, I mean, you know, I look forward and, you know, we were working on a cover for my series that started in, in March and, and I, we made yeah, this beautiful cover made and I looked at it and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not going to work. Like as beautiful as that is like, that's too much bareback. So I guess like, let's not do that again. <laughs> so again, right, I mean, it exactly. maybe makes me a little more intentional or a little more careful, like what I like and what I, you know, doesn't necessarily pass the, the prude test, I suppose. So, yeah. you know, here we go. Um, and, and so if it makes me, you know, and again, the really nice thing is that books don't run out of life now. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I can read, we, we repackage them with a, with the Duke's Biblos instead, which is a great historical word anyway. Mm-hmm. People, you know, I mean, people don't even remember what it was originally called mm-hmm. and it bounced back enough. And, you know, I mean, I can do promo with it. I can do push with it in different ways. And it's not, it's, there's no end to it. It just means right. that like it didn't work the way I wanted it to. It didn't re- mm-hmm. regain some momentum. Right. And then obviously this, I took a sabbatical in 2019 that I, that definitely did not work in my favor. And I know that. Yeah. <laughs> That yeah, we're so going to talk about. We're going to talk about so, that. Let's let's just dig into that. Yeah, tell us about it. I feel like I need alcohol. All right, let's do this. <laughs> so between 2015 and 2019, I think I published. I don't even know 30 something, 37 books or something. I mean, because I'm a heavy producer. I mean, I, I wrote. Uh, I published nine books the first year. I was in, independently published, mm-hmm. and I and I consistently published six or seven books a year. That's, that's actually a comfortable pace for me. It's not too hard. Nine was too hard, but, yeah. it, but it worked out really well. It was very successful as it, as it will be, but no one can, well, that's not true. People can maintain it. I cannot maintain it. Um, so I had written and published a lot of books and I was getting to the like 2018 and I was just tired and I, you know, my, my body was suffering from, from doing that. And I, had the advice of many people and myself saying, Oh, well, what if you took a break? Like, what if you could take a break? And so what I did was I, I put a lot of energy into writing a bunch of novellas so that I could still have releases. The releases still happened, but I wasn't writing. And it seemed like it was going to be just the best idea, except that that is not how my brain works. I mean, if you, if you do know anything about strengths finder, I mean, an achiever gets energy and joy out of finishing projects. Mm -hmm. And so saying I'm going to take, let's see, I started in October, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, eight months of not producing. Oh my gosh. And now in that time, I I mean, I filled it. We moved, we Mm -hmm. like, you know, we did, I did a bunch of stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't producing the thing that gives me the most energy pennies was what Becca would call it. Right. Um, the most joy, the most production. And so by the end of it, like I felt worse than when I started, my shoulder felt better, right. but I could have just gotten <laughs> massages regularly for eight months <laughs> and not do- and, and doing novellas yeah. did not work. Like, I mean, it, yeah. it, it was fine. We made money. It was fine. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't starve. We were fine, but I, like, I mean, we, I watched those sales just like, ah, So, I mean, it was, it was one of those things where again, like, I think if I had really understood how my brain works, I would have done that differently. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not that it's not that I never take time off. I do. I mean, I, I have realized, especially in this last year of COVID and being stuck in the house and being able to achieve just constantly, constantly Mm -hmm. writing, um, what, what my brain wants to do is it wants to write like a demon finish 
go somewhere and have an experience. Like we went to Scotland in 2018. We, we've been to China. We go to, we used to go to Disneyland all the time. We lived in Northern Arizona and it was just a six hour drive, like going and doing a thing. And that's how I refill that well and like do a bunch of activities and it, you know, and go see museums or go do stuff. And then I feel super refreshed and excited. And then I go work again and I can't do the second thing now I can't do the traveling or the ex- like, you know, I mean, I'm not exactly going to the museum right now. Cause I'm not going to die for art. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to die so that I can make snide comments about Georgia O'Keeffe because it turns out she was kind of a not nice person, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> turns out. Um, but like, but I, I miss that. Mm-hmm. So that that's not great, but I, like, that's what I should have done is mm-hmm. I, I, I should have taken time off for sure. And I should stand up every 20 minutes, like my stupid kitchen timer tells me to do instead of mm-hmm. sitting and then my shoulder wouldn't hurt. <laughs> right. But yeah. I, what I shouldn't have done was completely cut off the source of all of my power, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, I shouldn't yeah. have decided to, and, and for some people it would be terrific advice. Some people taking eight months off would just leave them like they would come back with like more ideas and more excitement and more joy. And, and they would fill up their time with thinking and, 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 and I didn't, you know, I mean, I did, but when, at the point where I, six months in, I had not had one idea. I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> I have <laughs> something has gone wrong. <laughs> yes. Oh no. Wrong turn somewhere. Yeah. This yeah. is bad. Um, so again, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really understanding at your core, how you funk, like how you are built. And, right, exactly. and I would do it. I would just do it very, very differently now. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. curious, like, uh, what is your writing process like now? Do you do all out writing and then take and then take a break for a little bit? Or how do you, how do you deal with that now? So I, um, I'm a fast writer and I write about 70, 75, 5,000 words, um, historical romance. And so that takes me, it takes me four to six weeks, depending on like how much I can buckle down to write a book from beginning to end. Um, and a couple weeks before that of sort of plotting and planning. And, and then, um, so that's kind of the full breadth of the time is a couple of months, usually yeah. that I'm actually working on a project. And then I usually take a couple of weeks where I'm doing nothing. And then two weeks where I'm plotting, which isn't as heavy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually sort of pre-writing. I realize now it's not mm-hmm. as more than plotting. I mean, there's a lot of more detail to it than I think mm-hmm. traditionally people would think of plotting. Yeah. Um, I write very clean. So the editorial process is not generally too hefty. Um, and so that's kind of the basic idea, but um, I usually just do all out. Just I have I have a page goal because I'm old. I'm an old. <laughs> like they used to count pages in the traditional publishing, yeah. so I yeah. count pages and I still write in Courier, and it makes me uncomfortable. Like people were like, I changed the Comic Sans and I wrote so much. I'm like, how did you know how long your book? I mean, I understand that word count exists, but like, how right. did you not write you know chapters that were three pages long or 28 pages long? Like that's how I know how to exist. But it's like, I am an old. Um, and so, you know, I have a page goal every single day. I have a page goal every single week and I hit that consistently or more. I have to hit it or beat it really to be comfortable. Yeah. Although I am getting better at being more, more adaptable. I'm not adaptable, but I'm, I'm better at saying, because I know my process, right? I mean, I know that I can make up for if I'm behind, I know I can make up. So I don't, I try not to get behind, but sometimes things happen. You know I mean? You can't really yeah. predict um, as this year has, as 2020 proved to us, we cannot never predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I, it's not that I never adjust, but it's that I, for me, having that consistency of goals and drive and, and hitting, because it's hitting an achievement every day. And then I'm excited to do other things. I'm excited to keep going. Um, that, that has really helped me. Yeah. And that's, that's always the way that I functioned, um, as a writer too, mm-hmm. is that I figured out that system a long time ago. I was very yeah. excited when I took strength finder and I was like, Oh, I'm doing it right. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray for me. Yeah. That is really interesting though. Cause that wouldn't be the process for people who aren't high achiever. I mean, right. it's just different. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. high achiever, high futuristic, high strategic, high focus, high discipline. 
Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a robot. I, we jokingly call me a robot unicorn because <laughs> I'm like, go. And, and again, like that's just a process that works for me. And right. I can, yeah. there's a lot of, a lot, because I've been doing this for so long, um, people will, Oh, how do you do it? And how, what's your process? And I tell them, they're like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, I know <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to but, literally anyone, <laughs> but not everybody has to do it that way. No, no, yeah, no. That's and that's the great the thing. part. Yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah. has to do it that way. And nobody yeah. has to do it anyway. I mean, whatever yeah. works. And there's yeah. the, the other thing is there's things you could pull from that that might make sense to you. Right. And then throw away the rest. Like, I don't care if you write like me. I, I do yeah. not recommend it. It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we wanted to talk to you about longevity and you've mentioned, mm-hmm. I think like knowing how you work best is key, but would there be anything else since you've been doing this for a while that you would recommend either uh, to somebody who wants to have a long career or somebody just starting out? I mean, I, I think as far as building um, an actual career, like putting craft aside, right? Like career wise. Um, I think it's really all about platform. And I think that sometimes people want that quick, that quick hit, like I'll do a book bub and I'll sell, a, you know, mm-hmm. 2000 books and yay. That, now I'm, you know, in the top hundred of Amazon and that's great. Mm-hmm. Except that if you immediately fall back to 4 million, that's not building anything for you. Like not, not, not long term, I don't think, you know, I mean, unless right. you have a whole bunch of books and that, that are going to, it's going to front push. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's, it's consistently building a platform and it doesn't matter really what that platform is. You know I mean? For me, it's a newsletter and social media, you know, and that's pretty much it, you know, but it's having that group of people that are always looking for and buying you as soon as a book comes out pre-ordering and, and building that community of people that, that is, that are your people and continually expanding that, that group. And so that, to me is really the key of longevity because the other thing is like super exhausting. And I also think it's, it's writing books, you know, I mean, the books sell books really in my mind. So if I, it is a lot easier to sort of overcome that concept of a failure. I'm putting that in air quotes. No one can see it except you guys, <laughs> but a failure of a, of a book. If you have another book coming and that book has the potential to do better, or if there's that, that book that failed again in air quotes, um, can push backlist or frontlist in the long term. Right. Uh, you know, so I mean, you having one book is great and I, I mean, if you've published a book, like congratulations, you have done something that a huge portion of the population wants to do and most people never do. I mean, it's such a small portion of us that actually do this right. one time or more. Um you're you are a special special person if you have done that. Um but if you want longevity, it's like, like that one book is not going to sustain you for a 20 year or 30 year career. It's continually creating. And I also think continually creating in a way that is true to your audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, for me, I I wrote, um, urban fantasy as my real name, Jesse Peterson. And, um, and then I wrote the historical romances for Avon, which were under my name, Jenna Peterson. Um, which was a joke that went wrong. They, they, so they like, yes, we like that name. I'm like, okay. Um, and, and then I write um, what used to be sort of erotic romance. It's really just my historical romance. I've always written super sexy romance. So it's really sexy historical romance. And I found that I was putting as much energy into the urban fantasy as I was into the historical romance and I was selling so much less like it was so much more of a slog and I wasn't liking it as much I didn't have I mean if you ask me right now can you come up with 10 historical ideas I could probably have 25 to you by the end of tomorrow you know I mean just you know if you ask me for urban fantasy ideas I have one no one wanted it after the first three books. So (laughs) I guess I'm done (laughs) you know I mean and, and that's just so I, I, I have, and again, this is just because there's people that, that they only function if they have a whole bunch of things going on. I have friends that do that. But for me, what I realized was that if I focused all of my energy on that audience that was voraciously reading the thing that I was creating and always making that new and always making that fresh and always making that interesting and always making that entertaining to me, 
so that I'm never tired of writing historical romance. And I never feel like I'm repeating myself too much. Like it's always a huge compliment when someone says, oh, I've read like 35 of your books and I never feel like I'm reading the same book. I'm like, yes, right. I've done it. I've succeeded, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I'm writing historical romance set in the Regency era. Like, like that's good. If I, if I've yeah. succeeded in that and created characters that, that feel different to them, that feel like a real person, then cool. I've, I've won the day I have succeeded. Yeah. Um, and so that was knowing what to put my time into and then really putting my time into that and is so knowing the process, but also understanding the audience, because that's the thing. If I, if I now threw out an urban fantasy book at them or a thriller or something else and tried to hand it over to that audience, they'd be like, what? Mm-hmm. I don't want that. Yeah, I don't, that's not what I came here for. I came here for the promise that you've been making to me for 92 books essentially wow. I mean most yeah. of those books most of those 92 books are historical romances mm-hmm. and and so it's not that I can't do something different but mm-hmm. if I do it I need to understand that I'm going to have to cultivate a new market of people right. um, and so I have chosen to make my longevity be very focused into that group of people and that has worked for me because mm-hmm. because I put so much focus into it it's because I put so much time into building it um whatever the genre does up or down. I mean, I certainly see those fluctuations, um, but I don't feel them the same way because I'm a core member of that, of historical romance now. So if you say, I don't know, I don't know if I'm really cool about it. I don't know if I really want to read historical romance right now, but I like Jess Michael. So I'm still going to buy her books. Like they may not be trying new people because they're more interested in some other genre, but they're still buying those core people. So becoming creating an environment where you become core in the subgenre that you're writing in, whatever that is, um, whatever that main subgenre is, is I think a real key to longevity. And that yeah. was a very long answer. So I hope it was. Good <laughs> it was great. No, I think that's great because it's yeah. very much the advice, like to stay in your lane. But, mm-hmm. and I feel like sometimes that sounds restrictive, like don't do anything else. But if you're in a place that you enjoy writing and your readers like it, then why wouldn't you stay there? You know, and there's well, and especially always if the that is better. For, yes. Right. You know? That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, that, th- th- and again, like I totally encourage if people want to, to, cause again, I have friends who write three or four different genres and they do great. And it's so, and again, that, that's because they're adaptable because they have an arranger kind of brain. I, I don't, I have focus. So for me, that's always going to be my advice coming from my perspective. Like if you're writing five different genres and it's really working for you and it doesn't stress you out and you're, and you're finding success in the, in all of those places, whether that's emotional success or fi- like financial success, keep doing it for heaven's right. sake. Like don't change anything for me. But I mean, if you're sitting there and you're saying I should again, air quotes, be writing three different genres under three different pen names and managing this and doing that and creating this because you have to spread you know yourself into different baskets. Cause God knows what could happen with this one. And that is stressful to you and it is not generative to you, then, I mean, there is nothing wrong with saying, what do I like doing? Right. Yeah. Cause I like doing this. So that means it's a lot easier because it's a really hard job to it's do a this. Hard job. There are a lot easier ways to make money. Oh my <laughs> God. So much easier ways to make money. But so, so anything you can do to make it more fun or or less stressful (laughs) um because i know some people it's not fun it's not fun but they can't stop doing it you know it's a it's a compulsion that we all have um i like it i think it's fun if you can make it less stressful then Mm -hmm. do it you know i mean because there's so there's so many things we can't control in this industry so many things that are out of our control what i can control is what i put on the page Mm -hmm. what message i put out in the world Mm -hmm. how i create something so that the other people see how much I do it, how I, how I produce it. Like all of those things are within my control. So all of those things are the things that I choose to control to make myself happier. Cause I'm, right. cause there's, I'm going to publish things and sometimes I'm not going to be happy with the result. And there, but there was nothing I could have done differently, right. right? but at least I can say, but I wrote the best book I could. I'm not sorry right. about the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. And you, yeah, well, we've said you've said everything I was going to say. You stay true to yourself. I, I yes. think that's you stay true to yourself. You stay true to your readers, and you've done it in a way that brings you energy and joy. And yeah, and I think that's important. So, looking back on the transition from traditional publishing to indie publishing, is there anything you wish you'd known? 
I wish I'd done it sooner. Yeah. I mean, I wish when I left Avon in 2011 that I had gone indie then and like really put the time and energy into it because I kind of sort of tried it, but I didn't really know. I mean, that's such a traditional mindset still that I just didn't know what to do. And I wasn't, um, I wasn't confident enough to, to try. Although again, like it's hard, right? Because like, I wish I'd gone indie in 2011, but the editor that I have now who I adore is the editor that I had with Sam Hain. So I wouldn't have had that and that she has made my book so much better and I would not have necessarily had that relationship with her. Right. So, and, and also, I mean, the Sam Hain books really were super successful and I think that really set me up for more success as an indie. So mm-hmm. having said that, if I could still have all of the magical things that I have from that experience, I would have gotten in the earlier. Yeah. I mean, because, because, you know, I mean, in 2011 was like peak indie time, like, like start off and really kick it off. Um, and of course, you know, there's this part of me, it's like, could have, could have just gotten right in on the front end of that wave. Um, but I, you know, I mean, I, I think, I think that's really the big one is doing that, doing it sooner, like having that faith sooner. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, I was uh, looking around your site and you had a post on your blog that interested me and it was uh, answering the question, how do you decide which book or series you work on and how do you decide the order of the books that you work or like the whose story comes in what order in the series? So could you talk to us about that a little bit since you've got so many books and your (laughs) catalog is big? How do you, how do you juggle all that and make your decisions? Um. I'm my it's really funny because I picked a word for 2021 and it was intentionality like being more intentional about those decisions Mm -hmm. Um, not that I'm not because I obviously am but I can't stop but but I think like (laughs) intentionality is something that I lose the thread on sometimes Um, and I really think that's the key is the intentionality of um, you know but it's also the joy. So for, you know, I mean, when I get excited about an idea, I know that it's a, it's an idea that has legs usually. Um, so I, I'm always trying what, what idea has legs, what idea fits with what my readership really likes. Like I'm constantly sort of like reaching out and poking around and saying, you know, well, what, you know, what, what are the tropes that you like that I've written? What are the, you know, what, what are the things and, or actually doing this great big catalog um, in 2021 of every single book that I've written, especially the histor- really the historical ones is really the ones that matter because um, I'm not going to write the other stuff anymore. And what were the tropes that I did? You know, what, what was, you know, how success, how many books did we sell of that book? Like what, how did people respond to that? You know, what, what was it that kind of keying in on what was it that really worked with that? So that if I, if I want to capture that magic in a bottle, maybe I have, I mean, I never, <laughs> you never, again, let's go back to, you never know it's all a crapshoot, but, mm-hmm. but the fact she is, try. It's like, but it's, but it's yeah. understanding the heartbeat of your, of your readership. Mm-hmm. Like when, when 50 shades of gray came out, right. There a lot of us that were, had been in romance for a long time. were like, dude, she didn't invent anything. Like, come on. But what ha- what I think people miss when they have that conversation is that something she did grabbed people that had not mm-hmm. read romance before and dragged right. them into the genre. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so what did she do? Cause I could, I mean, like, you know, m- maybe after so much time I can do it better, but mm-hmm. she did something that someone else hadn't done mm-hmm. for those people. So what did she do? And I think that you can, I mean, it's harder to analyze it with someone else. I still, I suppose you can, but I know how to analyze it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, what, why did this, why do people love this? And and sometimes I'm surprised, you know, I mean, I said, well, you know, what are the top five tropes? And here's, you know, a list of 20 tropes and they pick one. It's number one. And I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. have thought that. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. So, I mean, I think it's, um, it's ideas that I'm excited about and then it becomes, and then it becomes a marketing conversation. You know, I mean, um, like, uh, like the Duke series is a great example. So I went to a conference in 2016, I think I want to say it was, and, um, we, a whole bunch of the historical authors were just sitting around and we were joking that what readers really want are just Dukes. That's all like, what do readers want? I don't know. Dukes. That's the only <laughs> thing consistently that they seem to like that as Duke in the title, it's going to sell. And like, yeah. there's a whole other conversation about that issue, but it's true. So I was, I was laughing and I was like, well, I'm just going to write a 12 book Duke series, Duke, Duke, 
effing Duke is what I'm going to call him. <laughs> and, and like, that is to be fair. Like that's what that series is labeled as in my, <laughs> in my, in my folders is Duke, Duke, effing Duke. Um, and, and it's going to be 12 books and it's going to be 12 guys and they're all going to have apps. Ha 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 ha. And we all laughed and laughed. I mean, not that people hadn't done Duke series because they had it and invent this concept at all. No one has invented anything for so long, but it was like, it was like a joke. Like, and then I went back to my room and I started thinking, I'm like, that is an extremely marketable idea. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I was like, by the end of that night, I was like, okay, 12 is a lot. I'm going I'm to get tired. So I'm going to do 10. I don't know how 10 was better than 12, 10 was better than 12. <laughs> but it was somehow in my brain that it had at least one drink too much and had been eating too much fatty food. It was like, this seems like it makes total sense. And I had written down, okay, what tropes would I do? Like, and then how would I, so it became like, what title? So it's like Mm -hmm. the Duke, you know, the Duke who lied. And then I was like, Ooh, what would you have lied about? I'm like, I don't know. You'll get there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The Duke, the Duke of nothing. Like that was evocative to me. Mm -hmm. Then it was like, well, I I could do a rake and a wallflower. I could do this. I could do this. What about, Oh, and then she liked him, but then she was engaged to him and Oh, now they're not friends anymore. And uh, so it was like this, this thing started sort of falling into place. Like the marketability Mm -hmm. of it then became more of a drive of what would work and what am I excited about? So that's mm-hmm. kind of the mix for me. You know, what, what can I be excited about so that I do create something new and, and that enthusiasm comes through with what I'm writing, but also I'm not dumb. I gotta like, I gotta write to market. I can't be like, well, I'm going to write a story about, yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know. I can't think of something that you couldn't make work, but yes. like, like th- there are things that work be- like all of a sudden, if I'm writing very, very sweet, when my audience is expecting super hot, like that would not, <laughs> that would not right. fly. Right. So, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's sitting there and analyzing what would work the best and right. then, and then setting, and then setting that in motion in a way that makes me excited. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Those hooky, hooky kind of ideas are gold. They're just gold. And, and it really worked because, I mean, that's when yeah. I hit the USA Today the first. Mm-hmm. That, that's not true. I'd hit the USA Today before, but I had not hit the USA Today for a year, mm-hmm. over a year. And, of course, I was like, well, that's it. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess it's all over. And then, I, I mean, of those 10 books, six, I think, hit the USA Today. Wow. So, I mean, it, it worked, you know, and, and I mean, that wasn't from sales or book bobs or anything like that. It was just, they, they, they just, it started to generate its own, you know, kind of drive and, Mm -hmm. and I mean, ended up being very successful and it's still, I mean, that's the favorite series of almost all my readers. My, the best, the book that is the favorite of most of my readers is in that series. So, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's always analyzing because as much as I love something, it doesn't mean it'll work. And that doesn't mean I shouldn't write it. Like if I want to write something just because I want to write it to entertain myself, that's fine. But I I can't, I can't have but both ways. I can't say I want to write the thing that I love and I don't care if it sells. And then, and then when it doesn't sell, go, I don't understand. Like that's not, I can't have both things. Unfortunately, you have to have realistic expectations. If you're, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I love Duke, Duke, effing Duke. What is the actual name of the it's, series? The series is the 1797 Club. So, okay, 1797 yes. Club. Because okay. right. uh, sure they all become, they're, they're kids when they, they they're all uh, boys at the time who, who are all destined to become Dukes. And most of them have really useless and occasionally abusive parents. And so they're, they don't really know, no one's teaching them how to do this thing. And so it's like, well, then I guess we help each other. And so they, they yeah. sort of form this band of brothers that's found, I love found family. They expect that mm-hmm. from me now and I love it. So, you know, they kind of become this brotherhood and they form this club when they're 11, 12, 13 years old in 1797. Uh, so they, it's early, great. it's, it's 18, 18, it's Regency era. It's 1811, mm-hmm. 1812, 1813, but the club is formed in 1797. Yeah, Cause great. I like, I, I like numbers and titles. They're going to want to listen to um, read it just to see what you did in there because that's awesome that's just such great it was so fun long-term thinking yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and it was very smart to have the idea and go oh this is great but then to step back just a little bit and think about okay how can I make this marketable in a way that will be really successful I think that's Mm -hmm. really smart Mm -hmm. and I was also going to circle back because you mentioned you know 50 shades of gray and how that brought in a whole bunch of new readers into romance do you think that um with the bridgerton series that's out now on netflix that that's going to bring more readership to like regency historical romance i don't know it'll be interesting to see i mean it depends right because i mean it's all about crossover audience right so Mm -hmm. i mean people that want to come and they want to watch a netflix series they might just want more netflix series they're going to go looking for more for more 
content mm-hmm. like that. And so, I mean, maybe that's helpful because they maybe make more of those things. Um, you know, and I, you know, as an indie, like it's a lot harder to be the one that gets picked for that. So, right. I mean, does it directly affect me? I don't know. But I mean, I hope that more people will say, oh, I want to read that book that she wrote. And then we'll hopefully come and find books that are much more modern. And I mean, you know, the book is 20 years old, so it has its 20, it feels like a 20 year old book. And that, I don't mean, I don't think that's meant to be offensive. It's just like, I mean, if you read my book from 2005, it probably feels like a 15 year old book. I mean, I would assume it does 16 year old book now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I would love to see, um, more modern romance writers, um, and more diverse romance writers, um, be seen by people and, and have people get excited about, about, a lot of, a lot of us, I mean, you know, it's, I don't think it hurts. It certainly doesn't hurt, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see if it has that effect because obviously the 50 shades effect was from the book and then, uh, and then some, some of it from the movies. So people were already reading. And so then they were looking for what else can I read? Mm-hmm. And I actually benefited from that even, you know, I mean, because I wrote sexier books. And so all of a sudden I had a book that like, it just took off out of nowhere. I was like, what is happening? And then I realized it had been suggested oh. for people that had liked 50 shades from something that like, and I was like, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. So, I mean, I do see, um, you know, other authors being recommended, you know, if you liked this, you should read this person, um, and including me sometimes, which is nice. Um, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see long-term because it's really hard to know if a movie is going to translate to readership. You know, because someone that likes a movie may not want to read a romance because they're all poo poo about that, but they want to read it. They want to watch a sexy television show with pretty costumes. Right. Right. And this the series is different from the books in that it is more fantastical. It's a little more whimsical. I mean, because it doesn't fit into that Regency era like the rules that a lot it's of it's not like a Jane Austen BBC yeah, adaptation, it, right? I mean, it's got yeah, some yeah fantastical elements. Yeah. And that, that like, I think a lot of region, like I don't write Regency, but I have read a lot, but I think there's things that Regency readers just want. I mean, they expect, and it's hard. I mean, I could never write it because they're, they're hard. I mean, those, those readers, they know what happened then. They want you to put in. What well, they, uh, I don't know. They know what they got told by Georgia oh. Hire. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. Jane Austen, which isn't necessarily a real reflection. I mean, yeah. I, I really love to see the diversity because it's something oh, that it. we're yeah. not taught, yes. you know, that a lot of, I mean, we are in a very, very white um, yeah. subgenre. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's problematic, super problematic. So, I mean, it's something that all of us are going to have to come to terms with. And there's a lot of great authors who are showing a much truer expression of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, what happens is people say, well, that's not historically accurate, except it is because that's what, how it actually was. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is much more fantastical, but I mean, there were people of color living lives that were that mattered and were great in the Regency (laughs) and we don't ever see them in Regency historical or or certainly not in traditional Regency so I mean I think that that expansion Mm -hmm. is great because hopefully it allows you know a little less of that you know (laughs) I don't want to see people that aren't white in the Regency like I don't I hate that I hate it so I mean I, I do think that there that that there are super good things about it and I I mean again I I hope I hope it'll, I hope it'll change the, the whole subgenre and I hope it will expand our readership. And I think that would be great. Um, I actually, it's so funny because I, um, I just, we just self-published, um, trans we're, we're doing the whole 1797 club in Italian. Um, we're mm-hmm. doing self indie translations and, um, and so the second book, uh, her favorite Duke just came out in, in Italy and, I mean, it just took off like a shot. Like it was number 11 on the Italian Kindle, like Italian Amazon. Wow. <laughs> so not, and so it was very, you know, it was very exciting watching because we actually put the, those into KU just because of the, the way that the market works mm-hmm. in Italy. It's, mm-hmm. It makes more sense to do it in KU. And the page is just like through the roof, which is great. Uh, um, but it's recommended on the Julia Quinn, the Duke and I like, <laughs> like Italian page. And I'm like, yeah, That's <laughs> so, right. That's right. creeping up behind her. So, That's I mean, right. you know, will it translate into English? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Well, well I, with the E.L. James thing, though, I 
when I picture that whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing, I picture it like women stand, you know, like at Christmas, women standing outside a department store ready. You know, they want in, they want in. And when the yep. doors open, they just flood in. That's how I picture how people came into romance yes. from Fifty Shades and Twilight as well, but mm-hmm. but mostly Fifty Shades. And, you know, you cannot, and then they just sort of, they go to their favorite departments and then they go, oh, wait. There's, more There's another here. department. There's exactly. shoes here too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They and have so shoes. <laughs> I I will always be grateful for that because yeah. Anything that blows the market up is absolutely. good. Because absolutely. anything that opens up the door is fantastic because then it allows people to find, you know, people that are doing something different or doing something, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to say better because better isn't the right word, but doing, you know what I mean? Innovative, I mean, maybe. Yeah, innovative or doing, you know, doing things like that, that they've, they've really know the market. And so they're mm-hmm. really, they, they're much more representative of what we are as romance land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's ever anytime anyone's reading something, it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anytime anyone's reading romance, you know, unless they're doing it to write some hit piece, on, you know, on bustle or something like <laughs> then I'm not super stoked about it. But I mean, you know, I mean, when, when someone is reading and it expands, I mean, this is the thing, there's been so many articles written about this series and, and I mean, yeah, some of them have been very snarky, but some of them have been really like embracing of the, of the genre. I mean, we, I think we've seen, in the last year, a lot more, you know, positive press. I mean, it used to be, you'd only got press in February and it was always terrible. And it always mentioned Fabio and it was depressing (laughs) and you just braced yourself. And now we have to brace ourselves all year round because they are, they're, they're writing these hit pieces all year round, but they're also writing really wonderful pieces about how smart and innovative and forward thinking romance writers are and how powerful and impactful romance novels can be. And as a romance novelist, I'll take that every day of the week, every Every day day of the week. week. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. So tell us how you, what's the one thing you think you've done to set yourself up for success? I honestly think it's all building a platform, you know, having that longer, that longer term view of what the career would be. And, and to be fair, you know, when, when indie authors ask me how I've had indie success, I don't know the answer because I came in with a huge audience from a traditional, in, in, a, in an indie sense, like a, a much bigger audience from right. the, my, my, my first indie book wasn't just like coming out of a, out of smoke, you know, I mean, it, it had, it had a background. So, I mean, I, I always hate it when people ask me that question because I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but building a platform is the answer. I mean, that, that, that is what happened is that a platform was built um, and it just was that I had assistance in building it, but that is a platform that I have continued building. So yes, do those quick marketing things, you know, if you want to try them, but building that newsletter, especially a newsletter, because it is the only thing you own, you know, it's the only mm-hmm. thing. I mean, Facebook can change its rules any old day and does it every day <laughs> of mm-hmm. what can and can't be promoted what can and can't be seen you know same thing with twitter same thing with you know instagram like i mean i had a huge myspace presence in the old days (laughs) and i miss myspace (laughs) but i mean it went away and that's the thing like tomorrow people could just decide and i don't feel like doing twitter anymore i mean people say it all the time but it could actually happen and now my my huge twitter presence just goes away and i now i have to find something else but my newsletter is still my newsletter so i mean building that newsletter and building those connections to readers so that they're following you on multiple platforms so that they see it's more likely that they're going to see something you know i'm i'm building um an audience through having more and more books. I mean, it doesn't have to be 92 books. I'm a crazy person, but you know, I mean, having five books or 10 books is certainly going to help you more um, than you're, you're going to see much more return from that than you did with when you only had one book. So always continually producing like to me, like the writing always comes first, 100%, 100%. It's the thing that always comes first because without the books, without the front list, the back list will, will tail off. Like it will, it will always go into the ground. I mean, no matter how popular a book was, I mean, the first book in, in let's talk about the, the fourth book in the 1797 club, which is my best-selling book ever. It doesn't sell 5,000 copies a day. You know I mean? It doesn't sell 10,000 copies in a week anymore. That had, that stopped happening a long time ago. So I can't just be like, but the silent Duke was very successful. Like, yes, but that was three years ago. So now I need to move on and, and go to the next thing. So, I mean, continually producing front list and then using backlist to push front list and front list to push backlist and letting that, that sway back and forth happen naturally. Like that is the biggest thing you can do. Continue, continuing to produce and continuing to build a platform and not just those quick 
I want overnights because this is the thing like we could find overnight success in 2011 and 2012 is going to get increasingly harder to have that happen because, uh, you know, we are becoming a model um, and it isn't as like loosey goosey, you know, I mean, (laughs) there's much more structure to what what works in indie now than there used to be. And that that's just natural that it's going to become a, a much more structured thing. Yeah. So like finding ways to work within that structure and not looking for overnight success as much, because again, even if you find it, it will f- fade off. Cause if I, mm-hmm. I mean, if I can sell 2000 books in a day, because I had a book bub, but then I go back to selling zero books a day, mm-hmm. I've only sold two books, 2000 books that year, which isn't right. enough to sustain me. But if I, right. if I can sell, you know, 300 books a day or 200 books a day every single day that's a that's a a life you know I mean that's that's, a living that's a living and it's a and it's a career Mm -hmm. you know I mean so even if you're selling I mean if I sell 10 books a day of this this and 70 books a day of this and five books a day of this and one book every three days of this it all adds up Mm -hmm. and that's the long term that is a long-term career right but you can't sell them if you don't have them Right. (laughs) You cannot do that if you just are like, well, I wrote a book and I did a book bubble and it did very well. (laughs) Would you like to pay for it? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. And that's true whether you're traditionally published or independently published. I mean, like continually producing is is and it doesn't I mean again, like, you know, um, I'm in that swing of like constant production, but that's because it's that's actually is how my brain works. I don't function mm-hmm. when I don't do that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even if you're writing one book a year, every year, in 10 years, you're gonna have 10 books and you're going to have built a career, but you have to know that like you have to look to that 10 year point. Like I I'm at I'm at uh, I started writing full time in 1999. So I am at 20, oh god, 22 years. How am I so old? <laughs> okay, we're just process that for a second. Okay. So, I mean, but I'm at 22 years, but I'm thinking about 30 years. I'm yeah, at 92 yeah. books. I'm, I'm already, I'm planning the party for the hundredth book. Cause it's mm-hmm. happening. Like I know yeah, it will yeah. happen, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I, and, and it, I mean, one book, one 15 year anniversary was last year. So, um, where can people find out more about you and your books? So my website is, uh, author, and it's J E S S M I C H A E L S. Um, so author jessmichaels.com. If you go to jessmichaels.com, it forwards to it too. But uh, and that's where you can sign up for my newsletter and you get a free book if you sign up for my newsletter. So that's like a good starting point. Um, and if you don't if you want to try me out, um, I am on all of the social main social media platforms and I'm there as Jess Michaels BKS. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you want to see me yelling about politics, Twitter's the place. Uh, <laughs> if you want to see me being nice and like a normal person, Facebook is good. Um, yeah. And if you want to see pictures of my dog, it's definitely Instagram like all day long. He's the cutest thing ever. He's, <laughs> he's, someone said he's my favorite dog in romance land. And I was like, Oh my God, thank oh my you God. so much. That is such a compliment. <laughs> There's so many cute dogs. And then I have a podcast that airs every other week called Journeys of Romance um, that where I talk to other romance authors about craft and all that stuff. So um, publishing all that stuff. So that's pretty much all the places to find me. But sign up for my newsletter if you want if you want to actually see everything. (laughs) That's great. Right. Sounds great. Yeah. So thanks so much for being here. I think that this interview has been great and it will be really helpful for a lot of people. Including me. (laughs) Well, good. I've got my own notes going on here. Oh, good. (laughs) Then then yay. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and thanks for listening today. You guys can find all the links at wishadknownthenpodcast.com. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.